You're listening to WGWG.org, Gardner-Webb University Radio. It is uh, my pleasure to welcome to our studios Dom Flemings. Welcome, Dom. Hey, pleasure to, pleasure to be here. Good to be back. Yeah, good to be back. That's right. You were here a few years ago as a part of a, a group that uh, some of our listeners will be very familiar with, Carolina Chocolate Drops. You're a founding member of Carolina Chocolate Drops. Yeah. Um, let's go back and talk a little bit about how Carolina Chocolate Drops came together, how you came to be a part of that. Well, I founded the group along with uh, Rhiannon Giddens and Justin Robinson in 2005. Uh, I came over from Phoenix, Arizona to North Carolina. I came to Appalachian State University, went to an event called the Black Banjo Gathering, talking about the black and African roots of the banjo. And from there, that was, uh, I had been making my own research, uh, looking into the music of the songster, which uh, were sort of like uh, pre-blues musicians, or at least that's what I'd read about. And uh, in the course of the Black Banjo Gathering, I found that Joe Thompson's music, um, who was a big basis for the Carolina Chocolate Drops, fit uh, into the idea of what the songster was and where they fit into the scheme of of the the whole basis of American music. And so that was something that was really a, a, a big thing for me to uh, find out about. And then also, I'm, so I uh, packed up my stuff, moved uh, across the country in my car and made my way to North Carolina to start playing music. Yeah. And, you know, that's interesting that that moment uh, when several of the founding members of uh, the Chocolate Drops got together was at that, that gathering at Appalachian that you talked about. And, uh, you know, when people think about the banjo, they often think about folks like Earl Scruggs from right here mm-hmm. in Cleveland County, and uh, they think about bluegrass music. They don't necessarily perhaps remember the African origins of the banjo, and that there's this whole tradition of banjo music, both from white and black artists, that comes long before bluegrass is invented. Absolutely. Well, bluegrass came uh, came around after the Second World War, technically, like as bluegrass as we mm-hmm. know it. Oh, you yeah. know, there were antecedents before with like uh, Bill Monroe and uh, people like the Morris Brothers from Black Mountain, North Carolina, who, um, you know, Flatten Scruggs did their version of Salty Dog, mm-hmm. which, you know, their version's more well-known, but the Morris Brothers, that's all North Carolina stuff. And... Um, but they, it was a very similar transition to what happened in jazz after the Second World War, where you took this idea of bigger communal music and uh, put it into these smaller groups that were, you know, everybody's a virtuoso, everybody gets a, as much solo time as they need to, yeah. you know, to give a, a, a bigger message. And the music became a lot faster as well. A lot well. faster, yeah. And so true. a lot of this old-time stuff is just kind of reaches back into more of a community idea, because now I feel like people are so hung up on on uh, rock stars and singular people that are are running everything and so my music is all about trying to you know show this is what i do and Mm. and this is how i got into the music and now i try to open it up so other people can think about well i have this that and the other in my background so let me try to figure out what the music is all about for me as an individual, you know? You know, I think you're very right in all of that. I think that what we've seen is music has become a product that people purchase instead of a thing that people are involved in and do because it's a language, it's a language to speak. It's, it's tradition. It's what's been handed down. Instead, it's what you see on TV or on iTunes or whatever and what you purchase. And I think it intimidates people. They're like, well, I can't sound like insert name of artist here yeah. so therefore i'm not a musician but yeah. there's this whole other bigger broader thing that you're talking about how did you discover that growing up in arizona well um now do you mean the music or that idea the music how did you get into folk music 
folk music I first got into from uh, one of the bigger stars of folk music, Bob Dylan. That was how I first started getting into it. And from there, uh, when I found about out about Bob Dylan, it was through a documentary called The History of Rock and Roll, and, and the episode that had Bob Dylan in it talked about the Newport Folk Festival. Mm-hmm. So from there, I learned about the Newport Folk Festival of the early 1960s, and that got me into people like Mississippi John Hurt, Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry, Doc Boggs, Clarence Ashley, Doc Watson. So it gave me a really great uh, just a spectrum of different types of styles that were available in, in old-time folk music. So the 60s folk music in that era was what drew me into the music. And then as I went farther into it, uh, I was into early rock and roll as well. So I, you know, being from now, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't have a hang-up about you know, electric versus acoustic or any of those sort of things yeah. that, that plagued the 60s yeah. era and generation up to this day. Uh, so I just it made a, my own little timeline of what music meant and how it all came together, what influenced what. And um, and from there, that was how, that was how I started uh, pushing forward. And then I got into the 20s and 30s stuff. And then when I went into North Carolina, I started learning about North Carolina Piedmont string band music compared to the mountain music. Mm-hmm. And that was something that we did in the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Mm-hmm. Amazing story. Uh, you know, it, so many people do that. They, they, where, whatever that entry point into the musical world is, you know, some people, they're just riding, riding the wave of what's popular, but then, then others, like, like you just described your journey, well, what came before? Yeah. You know, wh- wh- who influenced this? And it just, you keep driving backward, but deeper, and um, th- that's the folk process, right? You discover that stuff, and you play some of that stuff, but you create new stuff for a new generation as well. Absolutely. It's what you've done, and the Chocolate Ops have done such a great job of. Tonight, uh, as we're recording this, tonight you're going to be, speaking of delving into the roots of all this music, you're going to be at the Earl Scruggs Center in in Shelby, and you're going to be giving uh, a performance and a a, a talk. Tell us a little bit about what you're going to do tonight. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, tonight's performance is in conjunction with um, the We Are the Music Makers exhibit. It's a photo exhibit and artifact exhibit that um, that was uh, put on by the Music Maker Relief Foundation. And so after I moved to North Carolina, so we start the Carolina Chocolate Drops, uh, we did um, we did one album called Colored Aristocracy in, in the 2005. And then we, we started recording what was going to be our first album, Donut Got a Ramblin' Mine. And I'm, I ran into a fellow named Tim Duffy who started the Music Maker Relief Foundation. I had heard of their albums before. And, and Tim uh, offered uh, his, his services to help manage us and help get, a, get our uh, business and career started as musicians. And so working with Music Maker, I've been on the board since 2009, and it's just been a, a wonderful thing. The, and so Music Maker is a nonprofit that helps out traditional Southern musicians. And so there's a lot of different types of musicians. And the idea is that uh, there's poverty in this country that is, um, especially in the South, there's a lot of places that are out of the way that there's a poverty that people have not seen or they feel is like a third world problem that we're the first world and we don't have these problems. And Music Maker just tries its best to help out in the ways that it can certain artists that uh, are willing to partner together with the foundation to um, help get their music out there for their community and also mm-hmm. for the for the bigger world. Yeah, they do very good work. I've known about music makers for a number of years now. And, the, you know, they help some aging artists and uh, with health care and, and all this kind of stuff, some some really good stuff going on through that organization. So if people are hearing this and 
they've never heard of music makers before. Maybe they want to do a Google search and check mm -hmm. that out. And uh, it's a worthy cause. Uh, we're going to talk a lot more, but first, could we hear a song? Oh, sure. Well, yeah. Well, I'll play a little song that um, I learned this one. Uh, this one's actually, actually, I'll play, I'll play this one on my, on my, on my six string banjo here. This is a, uh, my banjo, Big Head Joe. So this is a, a banjo that's tuned like a guitar. I'll play you one that I learned from a music maker artist. This one I learned from Boo Hanks, who lives in uh, Buffalo Junction, Virginia, which is right on the, the borderline of North Carolina and Virginia. This is one called Keep On Truckin' Mama, Truckin' My Blues Away. studios keep on trucking mama um tell us a little more about that banjo you you mentioned that it's a six-string banjo and it has a it has the big drum head on it but uh it's it's quite unique tell us tell the listeners well you know a couple of years back you know i lived in new york city for a while between um like i lived in chapel hill north carolina then i lived in new york and then now i moved back to hillsborough north carolina and um there's a store in Brooklyn called Retro, the Retrofret Guitar Shop, which is a vintage uh, uh, stringed instrument shop. So they have a bunch of different types of instruments. And I went to a, a New Year's party several years back, and uh, this banjo was there. And so one of the songs people have gotten to know me uh, from is a song called Your Baby Ain't Sweet Like Mine. And that song, I learned it from a recording of a fellow by the name of Papa Charlie Jackson, who was the first solo blues uh, 
artists to make self-accompanied blues records. So, you know, with the technical term of that, before that it was women with jazz bands backing them up. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. Papa Charlie was the first one to really break through that barrier, having self-accompanied vocal records, um, you know, that sounded good, you know. And so he played a six-string banjo, though, so it was a little smaller than this one here. This one has an 18-inch head on it. Now, when most people see a banjo, that's an 11-inch head on that. So Mm -hmm. if you imagine this thing's pretty huge when you see it, it covers my almost my whole torso. So people at home, you know, look up a picture of it, they'll see. And so I decided to name this thing Big Head Joe, and just to, you know, to give it give it a little name, a little personality. And um, you know, recently I've uh, I have uh, actually with Record Store Day, which is going to be tomorrow, Mm -hmm. I have a a new EP that's coming out where I'm featuring Big Head Joe on the on that release for the first time. Wow, just um. There was a, there was a whole movement of banjos by the 1890s of of you know and banjo orchestras. So you uh-huh. had banjos of all different types. So you know banjo ukuleles, banjo mandolins. This is a a bigger six string banjo, smaller six string banjos, five string banjos, four string banjos, and even a banjo basses if you can believe that. <laughs> and so this is something that comes from that that era. And this one's a really nicely made banjo, a nice custom-made model, and it was made in, in Philadelphia. And I'm not quite sure exactly, you know, what the person would have used this for. I just assume it's in an orchestra setting, but there's just no telling, you know. Uh, so, like, when I learned Your Baby Ain't Sweet Like Mine, just to play a little snippet of that, you know, I usually play it on the four-string. Mm-hmm. But when I first heard it, it was, uh, there's a very unique style of playing. So instead of playing like a guitar, you know, this is neither straight banjo nor straight guitar, so you have to play a different way. Your baby ain't sweet like mine. She bake a jelly roll all the time. And when I'm feeling lonesome and blue, my baby knows just what to do. Yes, sir, she even called me honey. Right, that's a completely different kind of style. I'm most familiar, of course, with the uh, Scrug style or mm. or Clawhammer, and that's that's neither one of those. That's completely different. Oh yeah, and this one, and see, this links into early jazz. So you start finding in that in that era, of the 1890s, say, until the first end of the First World War, 1918, you have this sort of era of banjo playing where it's ra- it can be it can be ragtime it can be string band music it can be early jazz or hot music which is actually like right before jazz jazz brings in improvisation and mm-hmm, hot music mm-hmm. was just like really popping bam you know which you hear in a lot of those old jazz records so this was one of those instruments made for that that style and that era so you can really pop pop it in some great ways you, you're taking me back to our uh, first interview a few years ago again when you were in with the Carolina Chocolate Drops. And what really strikes me, striking me again, is uh, you're really just a music historian. Now, in addition to being the artist, you're, you, you just have learned so much about the roots of this music. Ever, ever, ever written or thought about written a, writing a book about this? You know, I, I've only written uh, articles here and there. I haven't really written a book about it. 
you know, um, like uh, I've, I've been contributing uh, articles to the Oxford American Southern Music Issue for the past um, two years, and I have another one that I'll be working on on um, Thomas A. Dorsey, which would be a really great one. Uh, I wrote on Gus Cannon, also a lot of the documentary work, and also a lot of the stuff um, that was written about the Carolina cho- Chocolate Drops. I wrote that. And so as I've been going along and learning new things, that's been a big part of it yeah. that I've just, I've, you know, I've tried to use the knowledge that I found. Because, see, I tell people that at one point I took a lot of uh, what would have been considered useless information. It became useful information as I found a, mm-hmm. a, a job doing, uh, mm-hmm. doing music for a living. Yeah. Just because all those schools of thought, jazz, bluegrass, old-time music, uh, folk music, all of those schools of thought have been separate. You know, mm-hmm. and, and now in the post-digital revolution, most people don't have the same hang-ups, like I mentioned before. So it, it, there, there's a lot of overlap in each of the, the books and all of those schools that just hasn't ever been talked yeah. about, nor, yeah. nor re-examined. And I think it, now's a time when it, I think it's, it's very important for people to do it. And then also I think for folk music to, to get some new blood in there, new ideas need to, to be out there. And so to, for me, I've... I've just tried to take the different things I've learned, put it out there in a way so that other people can learn about it. Then keeping a couple of, you know, secrets in my own back pocket, you know, like when I did Prospect Hill, I brought a lot of different ideas with um, having a string band music next to a rock and roll and R&B and then uh, bringing in saxophone in, in very particular ways that, uh, that I think were unique to those recordings. And, you know, same thing with the, with the the second one, what got over? It, a lot of that has a lot of fife and drum music that's wrapped up in it too, which is uh, another part of my own background as a drummer. You know, and I think I think that that is one of the most creative spaces where, at the edges of these various styles and genres of music, where they all kind of bleed into each other. That's I think some of the most creative periods of music history we've had is is at those periods when when th- there are fewer walls and things are bleeding back and forth taking and borrowing and changing from each other and uh, and uh, just love to hear you talk about this stuff it's just amazing can we have another song oh sure thing well i'll i'll play you a little song here that i that i wrote here i'll i'll play you a i'll play you a slow one first and then i'll play you a fast one so this one here is a uh, is a slow song that i i wrote that's kind of in the folk style this is one here called too long i've been gone cup of coffee in the morning I can get up fine I can get up fine Delia is a pretty girl but she ain't mine but she ain't mine take a little trip to the station I'm bound to go I'm bound to go when I'll see my lover again I do not know I do not know Too long Too long I've been gone Four white walls and a worried mind That's all I have That's all That's all And when I need someone to talk to, I just say, 
hello wall too long too long I've been gone Fall winds blow the breeze wipe my tears away they say you're fine you're fine and when the world seems so far away I've got nothing left except my mind too long too long I've been gone too long too long I've been gone Don Fleming's live in our studios and uh, playing some nice tunes for us there. You you mentioned your uh, your EP. It's coming out. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that I did with uh, with my last album, Prospect Hill, is instead of coming in doing a concept, coming into it, I decided I just wanted to record uh, all the songs I was thinking about recording. I had quite a repertoire of stuff that I felt was good for recording that that wasn't going to fit into the Carolina Chocolate Drops. And, you know, I decided to, to leave the group there so that it could, uh, you know, the entity could live on in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now who knows what will happen. Yeah. You know, but uh, nevertheless, I, we recorded about 30 different songs in the studio. I had some wonderful musicians with me. I had Guy Davis was the main collaborator I worked with on that, as well as two younger musicians, Ben Hunter and Joe Siemens, who I had met at the Port Townsend Acoustic Blues Festival which is out uh, on the West Coast. And then I had some really great uh, jazz musicians that, that were worked with me, and I just kind of I directed them into what I wanted them to sound like and everything like that. And so Prospect Hill, there was a, I wanted to get a particular sound with that one. And so, you know, when you put a record together, you know, some songs make it, some other songs don't. And what got over is, was a a second record that I wanted to make because I knew with all the extra stuff I wanted to try to figure out a way to put some of the outtakes and some of the the alternates that I had because there were some great cuts on there like uh, Till the Seas Run Dry which starts out the album uh, until I had the clarinet version of it the one that I have on What Got Over was going to be the album cut some great fiddle and, and uh, harmonica on that one and also Big Head Joe on there and um you know, I, I just started working with that one. I wanted to make kind of a more artsy sort of ambiance sort of uh, sounding record. And then I got to thinking about it and the way that people are doing things with albums. I wanted to make it, I wanted to sequence it in a way so that if people had both records, then they could just ha- put a playlist and it'd be a one hour record. Right. Instead of just the a 40 minute record and a 20 minute record, you could hear them both separately. Mm-hmm. That's great. Mm-hmm. But if you put them together... You know, yeah. so I, I wanted to push that on Record Store Day because now Record Store is becoming a big thing. And I've been a collector of records for about, I don't know, I'll say about 20 years. And it's just been great to see vinyl record sales going up, you know. Yeah, it is. It's like, if I understand correctly, it's like the only segment of the recording industry where sales are increasing. Absolutely. Well, because, you know, people forgot that it, that people love stuff. And that's the thing is like, you know, CDs, as long as you made good stuff with it, you could sell it. And mm-hmm. CDs are still very convenient. You know, mm-hmm. I, I still think it's a foolish thing that they're trying to uh, do away with CDs because they haven't come up with some alternate. Because in my mind, when you have it get the stuff online, you're like, oh, I want to listen to this album. 
oh man, the internet's not working. Oh, yeah. Hold on, it's, it doesn't do this all the time. Hold on, you yeah, know. And yeah. I just that that drives me up the wall. When I want to hear a record, I want to hear it. And you know, LPs are a great way if you want to sit back and listen to some music in your home. It's the best way to do it, at least in my mind. It and, sounds better, mm-hmm. and I just love the fact uh, that the, the the tactile aspect of it. You touch it, you, you you hold it. You've got the sleeve and the liner notes and all that stuff. I just love it. That's right. That's right. You know, and that's something that I've always been an advocate for. But it's been cool to see it actually reaching out to uh, in a bigger way. And I think the main thing also is that. Uh, there have been players available, like actual turntables that are self-contained, and they're mm-hmm. selling it the same way that, uh, uh, you know, s- that people 40 and 50 years ago were getting mm-hmm. it, little suitcase record yeah. players, and, yeah. and they're selling it to the kids. Yeah. And again, you know, 20, 30 years down the road, that's going to be the new demographic of one segment of the music industry, mm-hmm. just because... You know, as as everybody's seen in the article, streaming only gets you so much dough because it's pretty much payola. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this summer, you're going to be touring around, as we said, with the Steel Wheels for at least part of the summer. What else you got lined up? And then there's at least one other issue i got to talk to you about. Oh, sure thing. Uh, well, coming up, I have the Newport Folk Festival. So I'm doing a two, two sort of angles on it. I have a, the Music Maker stage. And so that's one thing, advocating for having these older guys that are obscure folk musicians that are just amazing artists and and so bringing that to Newport and then I have friends that I've known that are in over in New York New York folk singers that are interested in the traditional music and so I'm working with them as well and we're going to have uh it's going to be the Downhill Strugglers and they ha- they uh, work with John Cohen from the New Lost City Ramblers and it's going to be the first time he's been at Newport since 1965 wow. and so <laughs> so I'm working both angles yeah. on that and it takes me back to my roots in two different ways so I have that uh at the Kennedy Center next weekend, I'll be playing, uh, actually hosting and playing at the uh, Lead Belly. That was the thing I oh. wanted to get to. Oh, just yeah, that. okay, yes. okay. <laughs> well, that's my other really big uh. thing I got going on. But I have, you know, uh, at the second half of this year, I'll be doing a big fall tour. So I, I'm going to be making making the rounds starting at the toward the end of this year, going right into next year. Tell us, tell us more about that Lead Belly uh, project. Oh, sure thing. Well, you know, one of the things... Uh, that got me into songsters in general was Lead Belly. You know, um, uh, you know Bob Dylan's song "Song to Woody" mentions Lead Belly, so I decided to just look up yeah, who, who this, this guy, guy was. Yeah. yeah, who is this Lead Belly? And and he has an amazing story as a as a songster, as a impresario, also as a folk legend, and then also as you learn more about behind the scenes, kind of uh, how folk music versus popular music fits back and forth and how Lead Belly was somewhere in between both of those things. Also, he had been in prison and kind of like um, how, you know, how to justify, because even now, you know, a black man getting out of prison trying to find a job, that's hard enough now, let alone think of in the 1930s. And you think of the struggles that he had to go through. But also at the same time, he was an amazing singer, performer, and a collector of songs of a lot of different types. And so, with that, uh, Smithsonian Folkways just came out with a new box set of uh, his material from their archives, a nice five-CD set. Just Because he would be 125 this year, right? That's, that's correct. And, it, and his legacy of music has endured. And so as they've put this box set out, now there's a new wave of stuff going on because now people are saying, okay, from, all the way from Pete Seeger into Bob Dylan into Van Morrison into now Nirvana because, you know, Again, Lead Belly's legacy hasn't really been reanalyzed since 
uh, before Nirvana did the Unplugged in New York album where Kurt Cobain did Where Do You Sleep Last Night. And so now it's just a new wave of stuff coming along. So, uh, And then as the American songster, I've been one of those people that's been advocating for that that uh, that sound, that style, that sort of idea for a long time. Mm-hmm. So uh, instead of being the tw- king of the 12-string guitar, which Lead Belly's been forever, to talk about him as a songster gives him a whole other level of how people can think about that sort of stuff. And so... That's how I. That's how I ended up being involved with it, and the the cast of people is just is just great. Robert Plant, Allison Krauss, Buddy Miller, wow. Valerie June's going to be there. Alvin Youngblood Hart is going to be there. Oh, it's just it's just. Gonna, oh, Josh White Jr. is also going to be there. His father, Josh White Sr., played with Lead Belly. I mean, all of it, you know, a lot of those, you know, different elements are all coming together, and that's kind of where I've been able to find myself in in the past couple of years is being able to help curate and help present new ideas and connect these really different schools. Again, even rock music compared to folk music has been very separate for such a long time that, you know, like Robert Plant will tell you that he learned from playing skiffle music when he was a kid in England. And, and Lead Belly and Big Bill Brunzi are the two artists that are the basis of all skiffle music. Wow. And it's at the Kennedy Center. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. You're going to have a great summer. Oh, man, it's going to be a ball. <laughs> <laughs> really have enjoyed this. I hope you'll play us one more song before you go. Of course. Well, well, you know, I, I, played you, I played you one of my slow songs, but I'll play you one of the faster ones that's been a favorite for a lot of people. This is one here called San Francisco Baby. It goes a little something like this. Francisco, baby, honey, I don't care. San Francisco woman, I begin to see you everywhere. Now I was walking down the street, I sort of caught your eye. Fool on me, it's someone else in disguise. Walking through the park, I thought I saw your smile. Fool on me, this feeling's mighty vile, but sweet. San Francisco, baby, we met on a summer spree. San Francisco woman, oh yes, I do decree. Now I was walking down long, bought a crooked mile. Try as I might, I couldn't crack a smile. I threw up my hands and I left it to fate. It brought me sweet you shine like the golden gate. But sweet San Francisco baby, what else you got to say? San Francisco woman. Don't leave me here by the bay Cause you're three times ten So I know you're ready to go Let's jump in the wagon Go down to Mexico We bump our heads And it'll make us laugh And then we'll pipe the whole town For a dollar and a half But sweet San Francisco baby Oh, San Francisco babe I mean San Francisco babe Skip, skip, doo San Francisco, baby, oh, San Francisco, baby, I mean. San Francisco, babe, sweet San Francisco, baby, we met on a summer spree. 
San Francisco woman, oh yes I do decree. Now I was walking down Lombard Crooked Mile, try as I might I couldn't crack a smile. I threw up my hands and I left it to fate. It promised sweet you shall knock the golden gate, but sweet San Francisco baby, oh what else you got to say? What else you got to say baby? <laughs> San Francisco woman, don't leave me here by the bay. Cause you's three times ten, so I know you're ready to go. Let's jump in the wagon, go down to Mexico. We bump our heads and it'll make us laugh. And then we'll pipe the whole town for a dollar and a half. But sweet San Francisco, baby. Oh, San Francisco, babe, I mean. San Francisco, babe, oh yes. San Francisco, babe, I mean. San Francisco, babe. Awesome. Don Fleming's live right here in our studios, WGWG.org. You've got to get over to the Scruggs Center for your show tonight. And then, you know, Scruggs Center, Kennedy Center, you're just all over the place. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and trying my best to, to just point out a couple of little interesting facts that may not have uh, gone through. You know, even with the, for example, with the Scruggs Center, you know, uh, Sonny Terry, the very famous harmonica player, he he grew up in Greensboro, and then he lived a good deal of time in Shelby before yeah, yeah. before going out to New York City and becoming yeah. very famous. But he came from there, and it, that shows in his harmonica playing. And it's just this whole complex history of uh, of uh, where uh, different performers, particularly I, you know, I specialize in the African American performers and how they fit into usually music considered white music. And but you know, it's all. It's yeah. everybody loves music, you know. Yes. It's just like with the records. People love stuff, people, but people love music, you yes. know. And that crosses so many borders, and that's something that's been great. I know Percy Sledge just passed, mm. and I uh, was listening yeah. to some coverage, I guess probably on NPR, uh, after after he passed away, and they were playing some archived interviews with him. And it was he was talking about how he and, and, and folks like Ray Charles, uh, there was so much connection between what they did and, and country music and they had grown up with country music. And, and, you know, we sit, we tend to think of, of country music as being, being white music, but there's all this African-American roots in there as well. And a lot of crossover, particularly when you get back to folks like Percy Sledge and, and Ray Charles. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that people just don't tend to think about are, are black people in the country. And that's something that, you know, commercially, that's just not, that's just not in the, the, the stere- I don't want to say just stereotype, but that's just not in the, the way that people view uh, b- the black community. And even mm-hmm. the black community doesn't tend to view yeah. itself as, as country. But at the same time, when you, go to, when you go to the country and you come to the South, you will find black people out here. You know? oh, yes. And the black people know they're there. Yes. And the white people know that yeah. they're there. But in, when you get into the sort of broader idea of what popular culture is telling us, mm-hmm. it doesn't talk about that. Right. And so that the and so like you know Ray Charles doing his country record or even a guy like Solomon Burke or um, or uh, you know Percy Sledge all these guys have roots in the country, mm-hmm. and uh, it's only because of the perception of what we expect out of them that you know that it, they become this sort of oh anomaly of like oh uh, you know he's he he listened to country music isn't yeah. that crazy yeah. but everybody had a radio everybody yeah. could hear like the Grand Ole Opry exactly yeah W S M six five zero Tom, thanks so much for coming by. All right, no problem. Appreciate Thank you it. for having me.